I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Hello and welcome to I Could Murder a Bonus episode. We are back in your ears, just your ears this time. How you doing, Ben? Yeah, it's good to be back in just the ears. Well, yeah. we've never done this before, actually. It's yeah. quite interesting, isn't is it? it being... It's odd, odd in here, isn't it? Oh, what's really that? odd. My look down. What? What? Why? It's just audio only. I don't have to worry about my posture. Oh, I thought you meant in the ears. You were laying down oh, in the ears. Oh, I'll snuggle in someone's ears. Yeah, why not? <laughs> sure, Dan, how are you doing? Yeah, good. I always favoured the camera as well. I had a little <laughs> twitch. I was like, mm. So this is strange, but I love it. Lovely stuff. Well, yeah, we thought we'd do an extra little bonus episode after Series 7, just to kind of have a little chat with you guys and thank you for all your support and your feedback. We very much appreciate it. And a lot of people have said it's been their favourite season, Ben. Yeah, they have. I think I think it was certainly the most intimidating one. I'll go back to the original mm, statement. You but, did say that. Um, yeah, when we did a last-minute substitute finale, which was an interesting move. Um, yeah. Oh, I keep looking at Tom in the camera now, but uh, yeah, uh, no, it's been a really good series, um, and we're yeah we're excited to go away now and sort of lay down the blueprints for for series eight. Uh, and we thought, you know, why not give them why not give them one little parting episode, pine shot. <laughs> Do you boys have any theory as to why we got so many comments about why it's so strong this series? What have we done well? Good question. I don't know. I think, but Ben, as Ben said, it, it's been a series of intimidating episodes. I think it probably, so even though there were fairly well-known episodes, I think some of them were a bit rogue as well. I think it was quite a nice mixture of episodes. I think um, you know we definitely didn't shy away from any dark cases this series. We 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 went fully into them. I probably went a bit more in depth from some episodes than we normally do. Um, yeah, I just think it was a nice. It was kind of like a Spanish report. <laughs> It was kind of like a Spanish restaurant with tapas, Dan. It had a bit of everything in there. Yeah. And um, there was still room for some more. Yeah, it's quite good. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's, that's, that's just pretty That was very partridge at the end. Can um, I have some more? <laughs> we were giving you more right now. It's a bonus. Yeah. This yeah, is like a true. little coffee at the end, isn't it? Yeah, an espresso. But don't have it too late. Cause no. You'd be awake all night, wouldn't you, Ben? Exactly, exactly. But, Shit uh, the bed. But in terms of, a, just a, to give everyone an update on what we're going to be doing, where we're going to be, we are still going to be posting weekly episodes, and we're speaking of which we posted a very big episode on the website uh, yesterday, uh, which is icmap.co.uk. We've got 108 episodes over there at the moment, and yesterday we released our Hillsborough disaster episode, which was a yeah, very upsetting case indeed but we, we do case requests over there and uh and we're going to be posting weekly episodes there audio and video episodes over there during the break so yes guys we're going to be having a little rap party over on youtube on the 1st of may uh we'll be having a few drinks answering you guys questions and just having a bit of a chat about the series and, and anything you guys really want to want to ask or ponder we've had a lot of fun doing those in the past and it's always good to catch up with you guys so be sure to join us on the 1st of may I'm going to say 8 o'clock, guys. Do I get a yeah, hell yeah from you, boys? Hell yeah! Hell yeah! There you hell go. yes! Hell, hell yes! Hell yes! Hell yes! And this Wednesday, the Wednesday the 26th of April, we'll be doing a live over on our website as well, where we'll be doing some form of quiz and games with our prestige members of the cult. So um, be sure to join us if, you're, if you are a prestige member, or why not join us if you aren't and become a member 
and then we'll play some games with us over on there and join the Discord. It's a lot of fun. So the Discord one, there'll be a private link shared for that one. And then the wrap party on Monday, the 1st of May, will be on YouTube. Uh, so be sure to check us out on YouTube if you, if you haven't already. We have visual episodes. Apart from this episode that we're doing right now, we have visual episodes of all of our main channel episodes over there as well. And Ben, uh, this case, uh, do you want to go and tell us a bit about it and why you picked it? sure thing yeah well this this is a case that's been on my radar for quite some time and um yeah that sounds just like my bloody radar (laughs) it sounds like that bloody message we all got this today eh does a bit does a bit ding dong be careful oh thanks rishi (laughs) um but yeah this is a case this is a case we love a mystery we love a conspiracy we've done a few this series so we wanted to pop another mystery on the end of our series um this is the case of the yuba county five also known as the disappearance of Gary Matthias, also known as the Plumus Forest Mystery. Ooh, also that known very, that sounds very Dan Lambert, the Plumus Forest. The Plumus Forest Mystery. How did he grow that forest? Yeah, how did oh. he grow that big bit of wood? <laughs> Terror on the Mountain and the American Dyatlov Pass. Pass. <laughs> what did you say? Sounded very Yorkshire there. Sorry. Dyatlov Pass. Dyatlov Pass, love. Get the kettle on. Don't let love pass. <laughs> Quite an array of names there. Gary Matthias. And you've written it um, phonetically there. math Mathias. Mm. Um, so there. We've covered the Dark Love Pass over here on a Minnesota once before. Um, and it's a very interesting mystery. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting into the Uber. <laughs> I'm going to rate it five stars probably by the end of it. Um, very good. Ben, will you be the Uber driver for us now and set the scene? I will indeed. I actually recorded it myself. So I'm going to set the scene, Tom. Okay. Yes. Did you guys have a private chat? Because I <laughs> Yep, we <Okay>. did. <laughs> During the bitterly cold evening of February 24th, 1978, a group of five men, each of whom had either a mild intellectual disability, a psychiatric condition, or a combination of both, drove 50 miles from Yuba City to Chico, California, in order to watch a basketball game. The group of friends were obsessed with watching and playing the sport and all regularly played together via a specialist community-supported programme in a team called the Gateway Gators. The team were due to take part in the basketball tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics the following day, though the five men would never take part in this event. Shortly after the basketball match had finished, the men drove to a local supermarket where they stocked up on snacks for the long drive home. Here they purchased multiple candy bars as well as sodas and cartons of milk before returning to their car. They got back on the road just after 10pm, but none of the five men were seen alive from this point onwards. 70 miles away in a remote snow-covered road within the Plumas National Forest, their abandoned car was found, with four of the men's bodies also found scattered deep into the mountains. One of the five men, Gary Matthias, an individual with a history of schizophrenia and violent criminal behaviours, is still missing to date. The case has caused widespread debate amongst the true crime community for over 45 years, and still asks far more questions than it is able to answer. Why did the men abandon their car? Why did they enter a forest with such snowy and mountainous terrain? Were they running from something or someone? And what role did Gary Mathias play, if any, in this mysterious, highly divisive case? Well done, Dan, that was brilliant. But we record this as well. Dan, that wasn't your best. So very well read, producer Dan. In order to better understand this case, we must first understand who the Yuba County Five are. And to do this, we'll start with a summary of Jackie, Ted, Bill and Jack before moving on to a more detailed background of what is alleged to have been some people's perpetrator, Gary Mathias. 
So Jack, Jackie Charles Hewitt, was 24 at the time of his disappearance. Jackie could not read or write or dial a telephone and had a great deal of social anxiety around people he did not know. He relied on friends and family members to support him with everyday things. Jackie was very shy and reclusive and very rarely spoke. If he did speak, it would be with a pronounced stutter. Being the youngest member of the Yuba County Five, Jackie looked up to the rest of the men. In particular, he idolised Ted Weir, who was the oldest member of the group. And Ted, in turn, was extremely protective of Jackie. So yes, we'll move on to Theodore Earl Ted Weir. He was 32 at the time of his disappearance, and he was outgoing and friendly and liked being around other people. <laughs> a bit like our Ben. You love being around people, don't you, Ben? I love it. That's Sometimes. nice. Oh, okay. Maybe you're a bit more Jackie. He worked as a clerk at a local snack bar and also worked as a janitor, or as we say over here, caretaker. A lot of relatives described Ted as lacking common sense, but having a heart of gold. He has been described as trusting like a child and could be very easily swayed. Ted had a real fear of the dark and would require a lamp to be on his room at all times during the night. At one point, for no apparent reason, Ted spent over $100 on pencils. That's a lot of pencils. Or just um, two really expensive ones. Ted was described as a slow learner and one of the less academically proficient members of the group. William Lee Sterling was 29 at the time of his disappearance. He preferred to go by Bill as he disliked being called William. He was a very sociable young man who enjoyed the company of others. Bill came from a highly religious family and would spend almost all of his spare time at church whilst also volunteering to read literature to patients at local mental health hospitals. Bill would form the friendship group with his very close friend, Jack Madruga. Jack Anton Madruga was 30 at the time of his disappearance. Jack has been described as a loner and someone who was very much a follower. Do you sit down vibes? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Uh. <laughs> he was the only member of the group to have graduated from high school and, and obtained a driving license and was a proud owner of a 1969 Mercury Montego. It's a really nice car. Yeah, sounds yeah. it. So, sounds mmm. 69, mmm. Though, like Ted, he was also described as a slow learner. Madruga worked as a dishwasher for a local fruit company. Madruga was, like Gary Mathias, also an army veteran. Though, from his time in the army, he had gained a fear of the outdoors. He did not like being out in the cold weather and refused to attend any camping trips the boys went on. Okay, so he's from the army, he's got scared of the outdoors. Yeah, his role in the army, though, truck driver. Ah. Oh, not to so. belittle that, that's an important role. So you imagine pulling up to a gas station and be like, you fill me up? You do it. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, I, kind I, of. I can imagine that. Like, why? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> Scared. So all four of the men we have mentioned, as well as Gary Mathias, would live with their parents for all of their lives. This was in part due to their various learning disabilities or mental health conditions, and, and there was very much a lack of supported accommodation at the time. Though Gary would only join the group a few months before they went missing, the five of them were known collectively around town and by their parents as the boys. The four boys we have introduced you to were described as followers rather than leaders, with Gary Mathias being the only exception. So we're going to go into a bit more detail about Gary now, but in a lot of the the uh, the podcasts I've uh, listened to or the documentaries I've watched, some people paint him as the perpetrator, some people paint him very much as just a, another victim in this case. And how um, have you drawn him? I've tried to be quite balanced. Which, which way is your palette facing? It's facing east, oh, okay. Um, which is unfortunately the way that the boys went into the mountains. Um, oh, 
which is annoying actually yeah um but yeah i've tried to be balanced but there is quite a lot that's happened in his life and the fact that he's gathered with this group of individuals we've just described all of them had intellectual disabilities but gary didn't so um and he was a you know a, a bit younger than most of the members of that group so a lot of questions have been asked as to why gary surrounded himself with these with, with the boys as they went by so yeah we're going to gary now so you're trying to be balanced on a slippery slope there ben oh uh, yeah it was yeah did it come out okay tricky thing to do unless you're wearing crampons oh god yeah yeah at least had croutons Gary Dale Mathias was 25 at the time of his disappearance. He was born on the 15th of October 1952 in Yuba, California. He was the youngest of seven siblings and was described as a shy, introverted child who struggled with social anxiety and emotional behavioural difficulties from an early age through to his adulthood. Gary also struggled socially and academically through middle school and high school, though he did not have any form of intellectual disability as the other four members of the Yuba County Five had. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia whilst at high school and was hospitalised for a period of time as a result of this. Gary would have frequent violent outbursts which made many of his teachers and fellow students deem him an unsafe person to be around. So yeah, I know I said I wrote this quite balanced, but it is going to sound a bit more swayed to Gary's got some skeletons in his closet. Gary's got some anger. <laughs> Gary want to let his anger out on your face. <laughs> that kind of thing. In the early 1970s, Gary made the decision to enlist in the US Army. And whilst decisions like this can often help obtain a sense of purpose or at least a sense of routine, this had the opposite effect for Gary. He became increasingly isolated and withdrawn and began to abuse drugs with a particular penchant for weed and cocaine. Over the next couple of years, this ultimately had a huge impact on his mental health, and at a time when he was stationed in West Germany, he was given a medical discharge from the army after being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. The doctor wrote PS at the end of the, the diagnosis, and they're like, oh, what do you want to say, Doc? Uh, sorry, it's paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> After his discharge, Gary returned home and moved back in with his mother and stepfather. However, he continued to abuse drugs. This time, he got addicted to methamphetamine. This addiction would increase the frequency and physicality of his violent outbursts, which would result in Gary being arrested multiple times for assaults on both men and women. It is speculated that during this time, he may have become associated with some very aggressive drug dealers. Not like those nice ones you get. Uh, just, no. you know, it's just really mad ones. I just uh, just punching their palm, going, "Yeah, keep moving, unless you want to buy some grass." <laughs> Not only was Gary placed into the prison services, but he was also moved to secure hospitals in order to attempt to rehabilitate him. Any time Gary was transferred to a secure hospital, he made attempts to escape. And, more often than not, he was successful. Over the next two years, he would escape from hospital on at least four occasions, one of which involved Gary escaping in his pyjamas and walking almost 100 miles to his parents' house. Another one, shockingly, involved him walking and hitchhiking at least 540 miles from Portland, Oregon to Marysville, California. And to stay alive during this time, he had stolen milk from porches and eaten dog food. Mm. I mean, this this kind of the reason I included this was just to point at the fact that this guy can hike, yeah. um, or hitchhike at the very least. Uh, he can he can 
navigate. In the months building up to his disappearance, Gary had seemingly turned his life around. He had started to take his psychiatric medications consistently and was no longer addicted to various illegal substances. He had also began working as an assistant manager at his stepfather's gardening business whilst also receiving disability pay from the army. According to his stepfather, Gary had not been arrested or, quote, gone haywire in two years by this point. Now, guys, <laughs> do you know where, where gone haywire comes from? Oh, my God, he's got one. Well, um... Starts a fire? Haywire, haywire. Thinking of a farm. Haywire is American slang and it is used to describe something dil dilapidated. I wouldn't have thought, I don't think it is. That's not how I'd use it. Possibly held together with such wire, but to go haywire, meaning to run riot or behave in an uncontrolled, crazy manner, that's more what we're talking about, most likely dates from about the 1900s and comes from the behaviour of the coils of wire used to bind bundles of hay. So Ooh. basically, you know, go a little bit like, oh, don't, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to snap. It's gonna, <laughs> the hay is going to be everywhere. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Wow. So uh, that's fun. That's a fun fact for you. That is. You guys. Yeah. Maybe I'll do um, this next series, Tom's Fun Facts, rather than interesting yeah. facts. I assume that hay wire, I don't know why, just hay, a bit of hay falling on an electrical wire caused a fire. But anyway, um, Gary met and made friends with Hewitt, Madruga, Sterling and Weir just three months before they all went missing, with some speculating that this is highly suspicious. Gary would join the Gateway Community Programme for people with learning disabilities and mental health conditions, which allowed him to play basketball with the other men for the Gateway Gators through the Uber City Gateway Programme. It was said that Gary convinced the other men to go on the fateful road trip in the first place. Another note worth making, so better make sure you make it, is that at the time of his disappearance... Gary is being treated on an outpatient basis with two different drugs. Benzotropine, which is used to treat movement disorders, and stelazine, which is an antipsychotic drug used to treat schizophrenia. And though he was regarded by his physicians as one of our sterling success cases, <laughs> and that's not a Kenny Dalglish talking about Raheem, um, severe side effects of this. <laughs> um, so niche. <laughs> Severe side effects of these drugs combined can include hallucinations and blurry vision. And it is here that we move on to the timeline of the Yuba County Five. The evening of February 24th, 1978. Gary Mathias, Jack Hewitt, Ted Weir, Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga, all friends and amateur basketball players from Yuba County, were preparing for a week-long basketball tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics. The winning team from the tournament would earn a free week at Los Angeles and this was a prize that they had all set their sights on. Having laid their uniforms out on their beds and asked their parents to set an alarm, the boys, as they were known by, make the impromptu decision to attend a college basketball game 50 miles away in Chico, California, the night before their tournament was due to start. They do this because they want to support their favourite team, the UC Davis basketball team, who were playing away to Chico State. The boys make the hour-long drive from Yuba to Chico in Madruga's turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. Spirits are sky high on the eve of their basketball tournament and the men are looking forward to cheering on their UC Davis team. Despite the unusually cold winter weather of the Sacramento Valley, the boys are only dressed in light jackets, with Gary Mathias wearing a beige t-shirt with the words Gateway Gators across the chest. It is important to note that Gary Mathias did not take his multiple medications with him probably because he intended on taking it once the boys returned home a quick note about this journey is it's very much just a straight road north they don't have to veer off any in any direction it's a straight shot north so just to 
be good if it was a visual episode because I could just draw an upwards arrow on them. I think people can get it from the straight road. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Oh, I like visual things though. <laughs> okay. Well, um, please try and please try and stay with us, guys. Um, I know it gets a bit complicated. Um, so late night of February twenty fourth. So that's not in the morning. Um, Nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> the UC Davis team wins the match, and the boys, buoyant by their team's victory, make their way back to Madruga's car. That's the really fancy car that we like, isn't it, Ben? Nice car, yeah. Turquoise yeah. and white. Um, Ooh. Just imagine that, yeah. After the game, the group makes the decision to head to the Bears Market in downtown Chico in order to buy uh, sweets or candy bars, uh, snacks, milk and soda. Um, I wouldn't want to drink some milk and then some soda quickly. They are last seen by the market's manager just as the clock approaches 10pm. Mary Davis, the store manager, recalls being agitated that the boys were taking so long to pick what they wanted to purchase as she was trying to begin the close-down process for the night. The store closed at 10pm. After leaving the store armed with a hostess cherry pie, a hostess lemon pie, a Snickers bar, a marathon bar, four Pepsis, several packets of cookies and a quart of milk, None of the five men were ever seen alive again. Mm. Indigestion probably gone, didn't it? Is it? Uh, oh, that's producer Dan, guys, by the way. You're such a liar, Tom. It was Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was me. Vince, come here. February 25th, 1978. So this is during the early hours of the following morning. For an unknown reason, and this will be a pivotal kind of uh, element which is theorised by people interested in this case, Madruga takes a wrong turn on a backcountry road and heads east instead of south. And east at this point is directly inland and also directly into the mountains, whereas as I said, it was a straight drive, south would have taken the boys straight home. Another hour goes by. At this point, the boys have driven 70 miles from Chico when it should only have taken 50 miles for them to return home. As they head further into the mountains, the snow-covered roads become more unclear by the mile and conditions are now too difficult for Madruga to drive in, so they make the decision, allegedly make the decision, to stop the car in a remote area of the Plumas National Forest. And this is, as I said, a highly contentious moment of the case. Some have speculated that the car simply became stuck in the snow and that this made the boys panic before making the decision to abandon the car. Others point to the fact that although the car was stuck in some snow drifts and it was clear that the vehicle's tyres had spun, the vehicle wasn't properly stuck and the combined efforts of the five healthy young men could easily have pushed it free and even turned the car around to head out of the forest. So there's, there's so much to the fact that they've made the decision to go completely off-route, like seriously off-route. I think mm. they spent two and a half hours on a journey that should have taken them an hour. We'll go into the conspiracies at the end of the case, but the fact that they've abandoned their car in quite light conditions compared to what most people would abandon it in, and they've mm. not made the decision to potentially even just get out physically the five of them twist the car around turn it around and go out that way yeah there's there's so much to this that i find just so fascinating so as well as everything i've just mentioned this is also this just really makes my mind run wild it is noted upon its later discovery that the car had a quarter tank of gas and was also in completely operable condition there was absolutely no damage to the vehicle or any scrapes to the underside of the vehicle that would suggest it had struggled which is really rare and quite unique for such rocky snow-covered terrain which prompts people to suspect foul play the car's undercarriage had no dents, gouges or even mud scrapes and not even its low-hanging muffler, 
despite having been driven a long distance up a mountain road with obviously five people in it, had no bumps or ruts. Either the driver had to be extremely careful, because as well, if you drive in the snow, you can't, if it's a completely snow-covered road, you can't look out for obstacles, potholes, anything like that. So the driver either had to be extremely careful or it was someone driving who was familiar with the road. A familiarity that Madruga was not known to have. His family said that Madruga would never have let anyone else drive his prized possession. The area where the car was is heavily forested, rocky and mountainous. On this particular night, the snow was said to have been anywhere from four to six feet deep in areas that were not roads, and a storm was raging in that area at the time. The five men were not dressed appropriately for the weather. As we had mentioned, they were all wearing casual clothes and low-cut shoes, and they were certainly not dressed appropriately to be in the mountains. In any case, and whether they were forced to or not, the men abandoned the car and start walking. Meanwhile, the boys' parents, who were still awake waiting for them to return home, start to panic and alert authorities for their missing sons. A week would go by before any kind of update was made in the subsequent searches. Police forces in Butte, Plumas and Yuba counties immediately began searching the route from Yuba to Chico. Along the route, they would have expected the boys to take without any kind of evidence being found. Over the coming days, in response to a high volume of local media coverage of the case, police received several tip-offs of some or all of the men being cited after they had left Chico, including some reports of them being seen elsewhere in various parts of California or the wider country. Most of the reports were quickly dismissed, however one of the sightings stood out to the police, and this is one that I'm going to share my opinion of at the end of the episode this is this man doesn't add up to me certainly no mathematician but he this guy i get very weird vibes from so a man named joseph shones who claimed to own a cabin in the forest called police to inform them that he had accidentally spent a night in the forest between february 24th and february 25th which is the night that the boys went missing he claims after having a couple of beers at a local bar that he was driving towards his cabin when he too got stuck in the snow and when he got out of his car to try and push it he began to experience an intense pain in his chest consistent with that of a heart attack he began to vomit and fell to the ground in agony he went back into his car to try and recover leaving the engine running and the heating on to keep himself alive through the night so that's his story to police and his story will change multiple times he does go on to stay in his car for six hours whilst trying to recover during which time he claims to have drifted in and out of consciousness he also claims to have seen a set of headlights approach his vehicle from behind and when he looked back he saw what he claimed to be a group of men get out of the vehicle including what he also thought to be a woman with a baby when he called out to ask them for help the lights went off and the people seemingly vanished he claims that he also saw people walking with flashlights not far from his car and whistling but again these went out when he called for their help and began honking his horn. Joseph also claimed that he saw a faded red pickup truck, uh, keep that in mind for future, uh, pull up and park directly behind him, but that the pickup truck sped off before he could work up the strength to call for help. Joseph's car ran out of gas the following morning, and so he made the decision to try and walk eight miles through the snow lose in yourself. order... Sorry? So lose yourself. Joseph's car oh eight mile, yeah. Joseph's car ran out of gas the following morning, and so he made the decision to try and walk eight miles through the snow in order to reach the nearby mountain house lodge 
where he could receive medical attention. Shockingly, he did manage this eight-mile trek, um, and it was confirmed that he had suffered a heart attack. He asked for multiple aspirins before then asking for a ride back home. A lot of people at this lodge have claimed that he was acting very suspiciously and um, that his story kept changing. And we'll go on to talk about him speaking with police and speaking with his wife. But yeah, he's very casually had a, had a heart attack in the mountains, walked eight miles and uh, took a couple of aspirins before asking to be given a ride home. Some have claimed that he would have been delirious from the amount of pain he was in and others claim that he had in fact seen the Yuba County Five. What can be proven is that Joseph's car was later found just 150 feet from the abandoned Montego. So that's the, the Mercury Montego. So it is a bit... That's far enough to see headlights, right? Oh, yeah. I don't. I just don't trust Joseph. Just don't trust him. Joseph Shones. Maybe we'll show him a light on his alibi later. March 1st, 1978. The 1969 Mercury Montenegro belonging to Madruga was found by a forest ranger parked by Oroville Quincy Road in the Plumas National Forest. This location was two and a half hours from where the basketball game had taken place. The car was in an elevation of 4,400 feet on the mountain. The forest ranger had been aware of the car for a few days before becoming concerned after seeing a missing post of the boys making reference to the vehicle. He recognised the vehicle and led the deputies to it. The car's keys are missing and so the police hotwired the vehicle, which started immediately and displayed that the gas tank was quarter full, proving that there were not any complications relating to the car breaking down. On top of this, all of the doors were left unlocked and one of the windows was completely rolled down. Madruga, who was known for meticulously looking after his car, would not have left it in such a way unless he was forced to. Inside the car was evidence suggesting that all five men had been inside it between when they were last seen and when the vehicle was abandoned. Police did not expect that any of the boys left the vehicle prior to becoming stuck in the location it was found. The candy wrappers and empty soda cans that they purchased in Chico were in the car along with programs from the basketball game that they had attended and a neatly folded roadmap of California. Only half of one candy bar remained. However, the discovery of the car raised more questions than it answered. That's a theme with this case. Everything I learn about the case gives me more questions than answers. It's fascinated by it. Fascinated. It's like a, a quiz book without missing the last few pages, eh, Ben? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. That'd be an awful Christmas present if you're thinking of getting me that. Or if you've gone to the pub quiz, but yeah, get back a bit early. More questions yeah. yeah oh that'd be horrific yeah no it definitely was cat stevens um why had the boys decided to drive far up a winding road into a mountainous forest location had somebody forced them to do this why would they risk getting lost in an unknown location the night before a basketball tournament they had been discussing non-stop for several weeks and why did the boys make the decision or were they forced to make the decision to abandon their car yeah well i mean at this point none of this makes sense to me you know the, the part that the part that i'm clawing to here a little bit why was one of the windows halfway rolled down? What do you normally do that for? If you if you're in the cars, you probably let one rip. <laughs> okay. Why else? Um, oh, you're gonna have a list, aren't you? <laughs> uh, usually, probably Ben. It's because someone's come up to your window and you rolled it down to speak to them. Yeah. And then no time to lock the car. Someone mm. shones a light in there. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Maybe shones has got a gun. March the third, nineteen seventy-eight. Police are contacted by a witness with another probable sighting. This time, it is by a woman who worked at a gas station in the small town of Brownsville, which is 30 miles down the road from the location in which the car was abandoned. The woman claimed, after seeing a missing persons flyer of the five men, that she had just seen four of the five men stop at her gas station in a faded red pickup truck, just two days after they went missing. 
The owner of the gas station backed up the woman's claims. She said that it was clear that the men were not locals due to their, quote, big eyes and facial expressions. She also said that two of the men, who she picked out from the poster as Jack Hewitt and Ted Weir, stayed outside in a telephone booth, whilst Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga entered the store to buy burritos, chocolate milk and cans of soda. So that kind of lines up with the fear, the phone phobia that Jackie was said to have had and Ted was with him. Um, and the kind of bizarre order of kind of sweetness and savoury products. Uh, milk, milk and pop. Milk and pop, yeah. Um, so you can see that. Um, and the owner's description of the two men's behaviour seemed consistent with them, as Ted would, quote, eat anything he could get his hands on, and was often accompanied by Hewitt more than any of the other four. Ted would also make and answer phone calls on behalf of Jackie, who had a terrible phobia of the phone. So a lot of the tip-offs, apart from this lady's and Joseph Schoen's, were disregarded, but these two have been kind of correlated to have perhaps been the only people to have seen the Yuba County Five alive. June 4th, 1978. At this point, the majority of the snow has melted away, and the Plumas National Forest is a lot easier to navigate. However, no Nobody has ever suspected that the boys would be in this location. The boys have now been missing for over three months with the Yuba to Chico route having been searched inconclusively. A group of motorcyclists who are travelling through Plumas finds a 60 square foot abandoned service trailer in the Daniel Zink campgrounds within the forest near Bucks Lake. They noted that the front window looked to have been smashed and so they opted to explore further. They are met with an extreme odour soon realise that they have discovered a body. 19 and a half miles from where the car had been abandoned, Ted Weir's badly decomposed body is found. He was lying on a bed with eight sheets pulled over his corpse and wrapped around his head, as if someone had placed these over him after he had died. It was clear that Ted had lived for an extended period of time, with authorities estimating that he had survived for between four to six weeks after arriving at the trailer based on the length of his beard. So yeah, at the time that he went missing, uh, Ted was clean-shaven, but he now had a little bit of facial hair before he eventually died of exposure. Ted had lost between 80 to 100 pounds before dying, and he had lost three toes from one foot and two from another due to frostbite. And as well as this, he had blood poisoning and gangrene in both lower legs. His shoes were missing, which is alleged that um, they may have been taken by someone else that was in the trailer with him, but his ring, necklace and wallet with cash were all sitting on the table next to the bed. There was also a gold Waltham watch with its crystal missing sitting on the same table. It was proven by the families of all the Yuba County Five that this watch did not belong to any of the men. It was said that Ted gained access to the trailer through a broken window at the front. So that when I hear trailer as well, I'm thinking of something really small that a car can pull. But this is like a huge, you know, static trailer that people have whole houses in. It's a giant trailer that he's broken into. A trailer park. Like the trailer park boys, yeah. Well, or just like a trailer park, yeah. yeah that's what I was, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was. Great, that's yeah, that's where I was. That's yeah. I might go and watch some of that afterwards. That's not okay. That's still not gone. Yeah. So it's a big trailer, yeah. and although, <laughs> so yeah. So basically, there's a huge broken window at the front of the trailer, which may have let some of the cold in, uh, perhaps. And although there were matches and paperback books uh, and lots of wooden furniture within the trailer, Ted had opted not to build a fire, despite the trailer having a fireplace and he had not touched the propane tank at the rear of the trailer either. There was also heavy forestry clothing, which could have kept the men warm, that also remained unused. Similarly, there's another shed nearby the trailer that had a butane tank with a valve that it had been proven had not been opened. It would have provided enough heating to heat the entire trailer. 
However, what was proven is that 31 cans of food from an outside storage shed had been opened and consumed within the trailer, but there was an unopened locker in that shed which contained enough food to have fed all five men for a year. And it was just proved proven not to have been opened. Maybe they didn't see it, I'm not sure. Mm. All of them, apart from Gary, have varying intellectual disabilities. They may not have seen the food. They may not have known how to start the fire. They may not have known how to use the heating system. But it's very much alleged if Gary was there, someone with a bit of military experience, he would very much have been able to get the goods, uh, you know, bring them back into the trailer, light the fire, use the heating system. The fact that there was very high volumes of forestry clothing in there that had just not been touched as well which is is, is really confusing because at this yeah. point it's not clear how many of the five made it to the trailer mm. so it could have been all five of them could have been a couple of them could have been just ted but there's yeah there's more to this that we're going to talk about now so interestingly the cans of food needed to be opened with an army p38 can opener which only gary matthias and jack madruga would have been experienced using matthias's tennis sneakers were also found in the trailer so it had been speculated that more than one or perhaps all of the boys had stayed at the trailer at any given time so we mentioned that ted's shoes were missing and that gary's sneak tennis sneakers were there i mean tennis sneakers in that weather as well oh. it's alleged that uh, Gary had also got frostbite and decided to take Ted's shoes and leave his tennis sneakers there because his feet would have enlarged slightly. So that's why a lot of people believe Gary was in this trailer with them. And okay. the, obviously the army can opener. I googled it as well. P38 can opener. It's literally just like a, looks like a blade on a hinge. So hinge blade. It's worth noting that according to his parents, Ted Weir had very poor judgment and lacked common sense. Once when his family's once when his family's home caught fire in the night, Weir's younger brother had to physically drag him out of the building, as Weir wanted to go back to sleep so he would be well rested for the work the next day. Yeah. Uh, Ted would also regularly ask, why do you have to stop at stop signs? As a result of Ted's body being found, a full search is launched across the entire forest. June the 5th, 1978. The very next day, searchers begin to comb the route between the abandoned Mercury Montego and the trailer that Ted was found in. So again, this this area that they're now searching in compared to the route the boys were supposed to be on, it's like, hmm, for the UK people, you thought they were in London, but you're searching in Norwich. Right. So it's a big difference of area that they're now been looking in. That's probably, I mean, distance-wise, I've probably got it spot on. It's just quite a niche comparison. So they begin to search this area robustly. Here, they find Jack Madruga's remains about 19 miles from the trailer that Ted was found in and 11 miles from where the car was abandoned. His body had been partially eaten by animals. On the opposite side of the road from him, searchers also find the skeletal remains that are later identified as Bill Sterling. So literally the other side of the road from one another. Autopsies would reveal that both men had died of hyperthermia, with police speculating that one of the men may have given in to the need of sleep that comes in the final stages of hyperthermia, whilst the other man stayed by his side and died the same way. Which is really sad. So these two, Jack and Bill, many people believe that they never even made it to the trailer and that they simply died that night trying to hike through the snowy woods in the pitch black. I mean, half the group were petrified of the dark as well. So you can't imagine. the f Well, if someone chased them onto the mountains, why did they abandon their car? That, going hiking through sort of four to six foot of snow in kind of casual clothing, yeah. in sub-zero conditions, yeah, horrific. 
June the 7th, 1978, just two days later, and with three of the five men's remains now found, a rampant search continues across the forest, with many of the family members becoming involved. Police and family members are holding out hope that Jack Hewitt and Gary Mathias may still be alive somewhere in the area. So again, with the discovery of the trailer and seeing that so much food had been consumed, they were hoping that maybe Ted had passed away in the trailer and that's what prompted Gary and Jack to go out and try and hike to safety. These hopes are quickly dismissed when Hewitt's remains are found just two miles north of the trailer. Now this is particularly grim. Jack's backbone was found by his own father under a manzanita bush. His shoes and jeans are also found not too far from the backbone, which helped to initially identify him. The following day, police found a skull that was identified as Jack's through his dental records. His death was also attributed to hypothermia. So four of the five men's remains had now been found. There was no sign of Gary Mathias. And in an area northwest of the trailer, roughly a quarter mile from it, searchers found three forest service blankets and a rusted flashlight by the road. It could not be determined how long those items had been there, though many speculate that these could have been used by Gary to get to safety and they were, they were proven to have been taken from the, uh, the trailer. Since Gary had also not taken his prescribed medications, pictures of him were distributed to mental institutions all over California. However, despite extensive searches and investigations over the last 45 years, no trace of Gary has ever been found. So that was the timeline. Um, let's move on to a bit of uh, aftermath and then the theories on the case, because... For me, this is a fascinating one, and I still don't have a full... I mean, I've got a theory, but the more the more I learn about this case, the more questions I have. It's like, yeah, like leaving a pub quiz early, as you said, yeah. or getting a book, with, or a quiz book with... I can't remember your other one, but it was good. Just missing some back pages. Yeah. That's where the, uh, the answer's usually located. <laughs> so my, my theory, right? Mm. This... A lot of people have said, oh, it's just, you know, a group of guys with intellectual disabilities, they've made a wrong turn and then they've made another wrong turn and they've ended up on the mountains. That for me is ridiculous because they've literally driven two and a half hours instead of an hour. And it's not just one wrong turn that's like a, a little easy to make off turn. It's like leaving a main road, going back on yourself and then going east into the mountains. And, and they're not just going into the mountains, they've gone all the way up these really sketchy looking mm. country roads into a snowy mountain. So my theory is that they were either lost or scared onto the mountain. So either someone has seen them at the basketball game, although I don't think it will be the basketball game because then they went to the store afterwards and loaded yeah. up on all that candy. But I feel like maybe there's been some road rage at some point or it's a loose one, but Gary Mathias has some bad drug dealer connections or something. I don't know. So I feel like, for whatever reason, they've been lost or scared onto the mountain. At this point as well, Gary Mathias should have had his medication. I mean, I've been lost before and my sat-nav's not told me exactly where I am and I start to panic a little bit, so I can understand I remember how you those... getting really cross before. Yeah, I get really yeah. cross if I get lost and yeah, things don't line up. Yeah, get really... We're in really... London. Was I? Well, recently? No, when we were doing spooky stories and you turned up to the studio and you were... You were fuming, to be fair, yeah. I was fuming, yeah. That didn't make sense. They closed the only road. I had to. I don't even know how I got there. <laughs> but... Probably, probably the same way we got there. 
No, because no, the road that you boys were telling no. me to get down was closed. So we yeah, to take here you down. go. I'm getting freaked out and agitated we went down. Maybe, I'll take, maybe I'll take you onto the mountains and <laughs> we, let's see. What, we, yeah. The road being dangerous went down. Was the yeah? It's stressful, isn't it? If you're lost, it's stressful. Yeah, um, some people get overwhelmed some people. By, yeah, yeah. That, some people do get overwhelmed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I think they've been overwhelmed, and for whatever reason, they've either panicked. Mm. or being chased onto the mountains. None of them have survival skills. They're all scared of the dark. They all hated the outdoors. They never are away from home for long periods of times. None of them were able to read maps, although they had a map. So I think they've got into a bit of road rage with Joseph Shones, who has chased them for a long, long way. Or also someone has viewed them as, as vulnerable individuals and wanted to take advantage of them, so they've chased them. Then he's pulled up, uh, next to them or not you know 150 feet from them he's tried to approach their vehicle to ask for help maybe he legitimately had broken down this joseph shones it's gone a bit wry sour the boys might have even panicked because it was just a stranger approaching their car and that's made them leave the car and run into the mountains i don't think gary Mathias had anything to do with it and i believe that this joseph shones scared them onto the mountains and that's what's happened gary Mathias is is probably his remains are somewhere on the mountain, I would imagine. So that's my theory. I think this Joseph Shones has scared them onto the mountains. I think, yeah, putting the window being rolled down lends it to that. And I think, yeah, you're right in regards to um, it's a very, like, obviously wrong decision to make going onto the mountains. And especially with um, Matthias in the car, he would be able to correct the wrong turn, I would have thought, quite yeah. easily. So I feel like perhaps it was just trying to get away from someone. Um, and someone who maybe was intoxicated coming back from the, a bar, which sounded like he yeah, was, yeah. would make a lot of sense. Um, so many believe this was a case of boys making a mistake after mistake, wrong turn after wrong turn, and slowly panicking, the more bleak the situation became. With arguably the most competent member of the group, Gary Mathias, now being beyond his medication, time frame, and possibly now hallucinating and heavily disorientated as a result. Uh, others claim that the boys were chased or persuaded onto the mountain by people trying to take advantage of the boys. Perhaps people then met them at the basketball game or at the store after the game and chased them onto the mountain or convinced them to go to the mountain for some reason. Another theory is that one of the men intentionally led the other men onto the mountain in order to harm them, with many of the boys' families pointing to Gary Mathias's violent and unpredictable background. Perhaps he had a psychotic episode in front of the other four very impressionable men. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Going yeah. into a pitch black mountain with someone you think you know really well and they have an episode like that and chase you into the mountain. That is horror movie stuff, isn't it? Ugh. Some have speculated that Gary Mathias may have been confronted by or ran into one of the drug dealers that he had previously been involved with and was therefore trying to get the boys to safety by directing them onto the mountain. Or perhaps, again, as we've said, they were chased onto the mountain. Police investigators and family members, despite knowing that four of the five men had died in the mountains, still could not completely explain what led them to their deaths in the first place and why they had gone into the mountains. They still had found no explanation for why the men were there, although they did later learn that Gary Mathias had friends in the small town of Forbeston, and it is speculated that Gary suggested the boys pay them a visit, with none of them being proficient map readers, several wrong turns led to their demise. So it could be evidence Gary basically had friends the other side of the mountain, but there were safer routes to get to that location. But also, the boys had the basketball game the next morning. They're all very excited. There's very little chance that they actually wanted to stay out late um, and, and go to Forbeston. Many believe that Gary Mathias's remains are submerged in the forest to this day, and that he has simply been consumed by animals after passing away from the effects of hyperthermia. 
Uh, some believe that foul play was prevalent in the case. Uh, they point out that if the boys had trouble with their vehicle or realised that they were lost at any time, they could simply have turned around and left the forest. The boys would have passed the Mountain House Lodge that, that we mentioned that Joseph Shones was able to make it to, and from there they could have called for help. For whatever reason, the boys headed further into the woods, which is not consistent behaviour with the circular patterns drafted by those who generally believe themselves lost, prompting many to believe that the boys were ordered or perhaps even chased in that direction. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because if you're, if you're lost and you know that it's getting darker and darker and more bleak by the minute, you'd head the way that you came, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day before the boys were missing, a snowcat cleared the pathway through to the forest service trailer that Ted's body was later found in. The tracks of the snowcat would still have been visible to the boys, and it's believed that they would have followed these tracks for 19 and a half miles from the car to the trailer. It's further believed that travelling this route during a snowstorm in unsuitable clothing is what caused Madruga and Sterling to die of hypothermia just a day after the they were missing and just halfway to the trailer, whilst Matthias, Weir and Hewitt made it to the trailer. Another speculation is that once Matthias, Weir and Hewitt found the trailer, they had to break the window to enter. Since it was locked, they may have believed it was private property and may have feared arrest for theft if they used anything else they found in the trailer, regardless of whether it would have kept them alive or not. Which is just a, a horrific thought, isn't it? After Ted Weir died, or after the others thought that he had died, they may have decided to try and get back to civilization by different ways, such as walking over land or hiking to higher points of the mountain to call for help. So yeah, that that one for me, if if they've seen, because someone's clearly wrapped Hewitt up after he's passed away, mm. so maybe that's what's caused them to think. It, you know, we've got to get out of here now. But then with all that food and the heating system and everything there for them, for them not to have consumed it because they thought they'd get told off. I'm not sure about that one. If you're trying to stay alive, surely you would rather steal some food than starve to death. Investigators believe that Sterling and Madruga never made it to the trailer. The bodies were found eight miles short of it on opposite sides of the mountain road. Two days after Weir's body was found, police think Hewitt and possibly Matthias came to the trailer with Weir, but then left again. The day after Sterling and Madruga were found, Hewitt's skeletal remains were located along the same road, but much closer to the trailer. Some people believe the theory that Gary Matthias faked his own death. Some have speculated that Gary Matthias may have intentionally disappeared and faked his own death in order to escape his troubles and start a new life somewhere else. Um, some people suspect of Joseph Shones a foul play. He made claims he was going to check on the snow around this cabin. It was later proven that he didn't own a cabin in the mountain. His story changed almost every time he told it. He told his wife a different story to the police and he told a different story to the people that saved him at the mountain house. He also made multiple statements to the press that contradicted his other stories. Had Sean's done something to the men? Yeah, it was proven, although he initially told everyone he was driving up to his cabin to clear the snow, it was proven he didn't own a cabin on the mountain. So that, for me, is very, very sketchy. Yeah. He also had a bunch... Of, I mean, it was proven he had suffered a heart attack. But he's still, it doesn't make you tell all these lies. So the heart attack element of this case is true. So maybe he approached the boys and tried to, you know, either ask them for help or he was after them. And that's when he suffered the heart attack. And the boys have then seen him have a heart attack and think, oh my God, we've just killed this man. And they've panicked and, and headed into the forest to hide from him. I don't know. But I think there's certainly something that's happened between Joseph Shones and the Uber County Five. Hmm. And I just think he's his story changes every time he tells it to someone else and it's just not consistent. But also if he is telling the truth and he literally had a heart attack and maybe he was having a heart attack when the boys pulled up and he's gone to ask them for help and they've been like, and that's what's caused them to freak out as well, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Because if you see a man sort of... Kind of like the, the pigeon lady in a... Yeah. Home, the home alone, yeah. just like, you're right. Ah! <laughs> But later, you're going back with a ceramic dove saying, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, 
One character witness, Janet Enzira, made a statement to the police claiming that she was convinced Matthias had murdered the other four men. She told police that Gary had told her on several occasions that he had a dream where he and several other people would disappear together. That's a very odd dream. And that she had seen Matthias behave unpredictably on numerous occasions, becoming dangerously aggressive very suddenly. A man named Charles Hendrick made a statement to police that said he had seen Ted Weir in the Plymouth National Forest on multiple occasions and that he was likely responsible for whatever happened to the boys in the mountain. He had found Weir inside his hunting cabin with another man and a young boy. When Charles confronted them, the three of them got into a faded red pickup truck and drove off. There's that pickup truck. Mm. That's kind of a dodgy part. That's kind of, yeah. Ted Weir apparently had been in other people's cabins on the on that part of the forest before. Whereas the yeah. families all said the boys had never been there. So I don't know. That's a bit strange. So just to go back to Joseph Shones as well, on when he was, obviously he took a couple of aspirin and then got taken home, but he would later go to hospital to get a checkup. And apparently the whole time he was at the hospital, he would regularly cry unprompted. Uh, multiple witnesses that encountered him said that he was acting very suspiciously on that day. Mm. I know I'm, I'm really pushing the Joseph Shones narrative here. Um, Although this has been a, an audio-only episode for people that are interested in the case, um, one of my favourite YouTubers, uh, a channel called Nexpo, does a very, very good episode on this case where it brings it to life with uh, kind of computer-generated images and animations to really sort of lay out the geographics of this case. It's really well made. He does another one on um, MH370, the flight MH370 disappearance. And who's that guy that we covered on the website that jumped out of the plane and... D.B. Cooper. Yeah, thank you, Danny Boy, D.B. Cooper. So yeah, he's also done episodes on D.B. Cooper and the MH370. So yeah, if you are interested in this case, it, I, I'm fascinated with this case. It's a really good one to watch. Um, if he is alive to date, which some people do believe, Gary Mathias would now be 70 years old. So there you have it. That was the case of the Yuba County Five, the mystery on the mountain. Um, the, the disappearance of Gary Mathias. Um, theories, what do you reckon then? I've, I've, I've shared mine. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm with you on it's probably shown is the, is the dodgy character in this. I, I go along with that, with that theory, um, especially with him telling different stories to his wife and then the police and stuff that always makes you smell, smell a rat. Um, but it's odd that he had a heart attack, perhaps doing something like chasing people could have caused the heart attack. Um, yeah, I'm probably leaning towards that personally. Even that, though, this is where it lends itself to the kind of more questions than answers. So then why did they make it to the trailer? Why did they not use the heating? Why did they not use the food? I have so many questions still that why were they in the mountains in the first place? Why did they drive an hour and a half off route? I'm fascinated with this case. I really am. So I'm, I'm happy that you boys uh, allowed us to cover it. It's, it's a very... Very interesting one. I do like a mystery. I think uh, I'd like to hear what the listeners think. Um, do let us know. We'll pop a little question on the uh, Spotify post so you guys can let us know your theories on there. It's always good to see. And guys, if you could give us a little review on the audio platform you're listening to us too, that does help us more than you'll know. And it'd be very much appreciated. We appreciate it so, so much. We have got massive things planned for Series 8. In the meantime, uh, we will be posting weekly episodes to our to our website, um, which is icmap.co.uk. We also have a private RSS feed on there, so you can listen to your audio episodes in, in your favourite places. Um, and yeah, we've got some really intriguing cases coming up on the site there, um, which we can't wait to share with you. And yes, guys, we're going to have a little break now after Series 7. We'll be back again sooner than you can say 
Lichny Schnicket. We've already got it all planned out in terms of what we're going to be covering and we're very excited to get researching those. And yes, as Ben said, we still will be posting on the website. So if you want to continue getting content and also interact with us over on the Discord, why not join the cult and sign up to our prestige membership? And why not join us with the live stream, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode? We'll be doing the wrap party on Monday the 1st of May. 8pm on YouTube. Be there or be square. Um, mm. I think there are going to be a few drinks sunk that night. Sunk. Yeah. Hell yeah. Definitely. Yeah, hell yes. Yes, yes, yes indeed. Anyway, guys, like we always say... We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Just turning the heating system on. Be really cold. I slept in a house with no heating and now I've got the flu. Uh, That's not about me. You often make it. I do. I do. Yes, guys. Well, yeah, wrap up warm, eh? Yeah. Well, it's actually been summer now, but... Yes, guys, anyway... Until next time, to the pip. See ya. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.